So, uh, howdy, Mike. Hey, let's try this again. Yeah, take two. Or take one. Or is it? The magic of editing. Um, what's new? Uh, not too much. We're going to do uh, episode 28 of the show. Cool. We almost have a month's worth here. A short month's worth. Yeah, we have a February worth of, uh, of podcasts. You just know that? You got that like on the top of your head? How many week, How many days are in a month? It's just February. Wow. I'll bet you're the sort of person who memorized multiplication tables as a kid. No, no, I just kept them under my desk and cheated with them. No, you didn't. You're such a goody-goody. You, totally, you probably got them all in your head. What's seven times eight? 56. Ah, oh, see, look at that. You're like a human machine. <laughs> Um, like a Sex Pistols song. Um, so what's new? So you look at that. You even have like a, the discography memorized. Yeah. You're like Mike, walking Wikipedia. I don't have a girlfriend. I have time for these things. <laughs> oh, it's good though. Um, so this week, uh, Mountain Lion came out and related applications. Yes, our applications came out. Yeah. yeah. Twice in some cases. Uh, so Mountain Lion, first off, um, we talked last week about the update and what was coming and, and maybe gave some advice on whether we thought you should upgrade or not. But I will say um, it's been interesting to watch online. I you know, I can't remember an OS release that's been less problematic. Uh, it seems like there have been almost no or I haven't seen any cases of sort of catastrophic failures or really any big issues. Um you know, the App Store process has worked well, and for people whose machines are supported, it seems to be going really smoothly. Yeah, it's, um, they've got this down now. It helps that they're not changing much anymore, but it also, I mean, it's sort of a testament to the App Store um, whole deployment model. Like, it's just really easy to do this sort of stuff now. Yeah. I mean, you know, because even, even if they're not changing much, it's sort of analogous to this, this idea of, you know, changing wings on a plane mid-flight. Like, changing out an OS is never a trivial process, and there's a lot of opportunity for things to go wrong. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's been, it's been very impressive, and people seem, you know, again, even though there aren't major changes, people seem relatively happy with the update. Yeah, so are you, you're running it on your, your new Retina, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I took this Retina out of the box and just went right to Mountain Lion on it and um, set up a sort of clean system. I didn't do the, whatever, I forget what their migration, migration tool. Assistance. Yeah, I, I didn't use that just because the old system had gotten pretty cl- kludged up, clunk, gunked. Kludged? Yeah, that's not what I wanted, gunked up. Um, and so I'm starting fresh, um, and, you know, installed things I needed and made some, some application switches and things that I've been thinking about for a while. And yeah, it's been, you know, very solid. Um, I can't think of any glitches, even the sort of retina stuff, um, has been just non, you know, really not painful at all. Good. Yeah. No, they seem to have this down. Um, so what do you think? I mean, so, yeah, I mean, so your experience was pull the machine out, update, and then, like, what percentage of your software do you think just came straight off, just, like, syncing to the App Store again, hitting uh, the download buttons? I mean, did you have to do much outside of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, 
again, you know, I wish there was there was more that was coming out of the App Store, but I would say maybe a third or, or 25% um, I was able to get from the App Store. Um, and then in a lot of cases, what I did is I just pulled the app bundles off the old machine, or I had a drive that I'd cloned this, the old machine to. I pulled the app bundles off and then let those apps sort of auto-update, since most apps pushed out updates um, in the last you know few days for mountain lion issues. But, I, you know, I... I got Xcode out of the App Store and the various Omni group apps as, as much as possible and uh, the Panic apps and, you know, a handful of others. Um, and it was, you know, fantastic, like, to be able to go in and just hit install, 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 install and have it all work. Um, but, you know, even the ones that I didn't have to move were, or that I had to move manually were, were pretty painless. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely getting there. Yeah. So how was like, um, copying things over like, um, Final Cut that worked? Uh, with Final Cut 7, I just installed fresh from the, the DMG or from, you know, uh, an ISO sure. of a CD, um, just because, yeah, I don't think that one would install fresh or would install via copy, um, with Final Cut X, obviously that's out of the app store, but, um, and then the Adobe stuff, this was my first experience with Adobe's cloud tool. Um, what yeah, we got the cloud, uh, creative, creative cloud. cloud. Yeah. Um, and so that was a, you know, for an Adobe thing, especially very impressive in terms of ease of use and just being able to go in and get their little shim app and then say, I want Photoshop and Premiere and not have to click through a million package maker screens and just sort of come back an hour later and have the Adobe app set up. That was great. Yeah, no, they really nailed that one. That's worth, I mean, the convenience alone is worth the perpetual license. Yeah. It's, yeah, I've been really impressed with that. So, um, what else? Well, we'll link to, um, John Syracuse's epic as per always, uh, OS 10 review on ours. And if you haven't read it, um, and you're at all interested in this stuff, he always not only gives you a sense of the sort of high level features, but also under the hood, uh, the sort of changes, things like scene kit and some of the other cool APIs and system level changes like core storage that are uh, exciting. If you're just into sort of nerding about the OS stuff. Yeah, I haven't read it yet. Is it worth? I mean, it's you know, it's it's a commitment, but I think it's a good read. He does a really nice job of summarizing things, and it's a you know, good reminder. Even though we saw the WWDC keynote in various sessions, it's a good reminder of what all to be expecting in the OS. Sure. If you're going to read any OS 10 review, definitely read that one. I would say, but it's 28 pages or something. So, man. Okay. And well, but I guess. if you happen to be one of our customers, um, we do have releases out and make sure you update ClipWrap and Scopebox. They both need to be running the current versions if you're on Mountain Lion. Um, and if you're a ClipWrap user and you updated earlier this week, please update again because I screwed up. Eh, it was a edge case. Yeah. Um, but make sure you're on 254 and uh, you'll be in good shape. Yeah, so um, what did we what did we have to change? Do we want to go over that? Like, what is there? Was there anything interesting there? Yeah, Not really. And on the clip rep side, it was dealing with some audio issues and. Um you know, not too much else. The scope box. Oh yeah, hosting audio components here. Right. The scope box side. I don't think we had any sort of mountain line specific changes in scope. Yeah, the only thing we did was sign the app for Gatekeeper. Yeah, we, um, we just took the opportunity to roll in a bunch of other stuff we've had uh, sitting on the 
on the release schedule, like retina support and um, some pretty big performance improvements and other things. So if you're a Skillbox user and happen to be listening, definitely update and let us know what you think. Let us know how performance is. Um, we've got some other things in the pipeline, so if you're interested in being involved in any beta testing or anything, get in touch. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's all there is to say about Moonlight, right? Yeah, I think so. I, you know, again, don't update your production dedicated system, but if you've got like a, you know, daily laptop or something like that, yeah, I'd say go for it. Um, start moving non-essential systems over. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's and start looking for a three or four day break where you can move everything else over to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you're obviously if you're on a you know, a system like an Avid or a Pro Tools station or something, wait until everything's been checked out, all your plugins and everything have been approved. Um, but, you know, if you're in a Final Cut world, uh, if you're in Final Cut X, you can probably move pretty quickly. And Adobe's um, been pretty thumbs up on Mountain Line as well with Premiere. So, Yeah, they don't seem to be... Yeah, there don't seem to be any big problems there. No, not like in, in some, you know, I think... It ten five, ten six. One of those releases, it took quite a while for some of these media apps to get up to speed on. But uh, this one, not so much. Yeah, there wasn't that much changed. Yeah, I mean, those apps aren't gatekeeper signed yet, are they? Uh, most of. I mean, I, that that's been another surprising thing. Maybe just to briefly pause. Um, you know, one of the reasons we had to put out new releases of our apps, the primary reason was to sign them with Gatekeeper, which we talked about last week as a sort of intermediary between everything in the app store and the free for all that is downloading apps off the internet. If out of the box you download an app from the web and try and install it on Mountain Lion and it isn't signed, you can't do that it'll just the system will say sorry this is an unknown developer you can't launch this app um, and you can of course turn that off but i've been surprised i only ran across two apps that uh were not signed and they were both sort of apps from companies that aren't first and foremost app developers so one was from cisco and i forget what the other one was like uh, drivers for something wasn't it i forget um but it was Your scanner right oh yeah it was um the yeah software for my scanner so you know which from, was never good right so it's it's companies where the mac app is an afterthought anyways and so you're not surprised i mean i was surprised they worked at all um and right. and uh jabber definitely has some issues on the retina but um I, yeah it's um been surprising because i figured some of the apps i use wouldn't have gotten around to signing but by and large they have so Luckily, I mean, it was really simple. Yeah. Like, it was a, it's a 15, 20-minute process to get up to speed and get your app signed. But, yeah, all the Adobe stuff uh, was fine and, yeah, relatively impressed. And also, someday we can have the text editor conversation because I've moved to Sublime Text 2, and I am absolutely in love with it. Uh, let's not have that conversation. Someday. Someday we will have that conversation. <laughs> you might not be on the podcast that day, but... Okay, well, you can, yeah, you can talk to anyone you want about that. Yeah, I'll get, you know, yeah. So, uh, the Olympics started last night. Actually, it started a few days ago, but the opening ceremony was last night. It was weird. Did you, you saw it, right? I, I saw it today. I, um, I, I saw it today and, um, it was weird. It was very British, but in all the ways that. British things are just a little bit strange and I don't know. It was not Beijing. I heard it was really good. It was, I mean, it was not bad, but it was, 
it was dense and um there was a lot of different themes and a lot of stuff going on and it was seemingly well executed um did the money python people show up i'm not sure i may have skimmed some sections i i will admit i did not watch all three hours of people entering the stadium well once you get to that it's just sort of walking right but there was more stuff they after do that. the whole event in the beginning right well but then there's like another hour afterwards of more opening ceremony stuff so you had to like skim past it and then watch the end huh so i don't know had the queen had james bond had mr bean had a bunch of music people i have found it weird and maybe this is you know I'm sure there will be an article in some left, you know, the Atlantic or something about uh, the symbolism of how much the Sex Pistols is playing into this. Because I've seen not only during the opening games they used they they used two different Sex Pistols songs, and in other things around the Olympics as well, which is sort of I find very funny because the Sex Pistols are at least according to the Sex Pistols narrative this sort of anti-establishment punk rock band you know they wrote songs like god save the queen um and then songs like god save the queen are being used in the olympics which are kicked off by the queen and are this you know very british centric um national unity sort of nationalist event um and i don't i don't know if you know the johnny rottens of the world would find that ironic or if it's just sort of okay. I don't know. And I, I assume that the people who have chosen the music are under, you know, thinking about the symbolism of it's not like Reagan using uh, Born in the USA. I, you know, I assume they've thought through the implications, but it's interesting. Well, I mean, even Reagan using Born in the USA, like, it, you still win. Like, like if you can co-opt a subversive song... Then it's not subversive anymore. I guess. I mean, it's just, does it subvert you or are you subverting it? Um, I think the one that more people see wins. Yeah. Well, in any case, the opening games, opening ceremonies were interesting. Yeah, I need to to see those still. So why didn't you get to see it? Because it was a total... So, yeah, so let's use this as a... That was a segue. What what the fuck is NBC doing? I mean... Like, how was I not... So I actually tried to watch the games last night, and there is no way, if you do not have TV, to see these, short of, you know, stealing them. Right. You know, there were a lot of people using VPNs and other sorts of tunnels to stream them from the BBC. Um, Oh, I didn't even think about doing that. Yeah, there's a But then you had to do it at BBC time, right? Well, they've got it time delayed as well. I mean, they've got all their stuff archived. So you can watch. Okay, maybe I'll do that. So, so you can do that today, yeah, even. But yeah, I mean, I don't know, and I haven't... Honestly, I this was one of those Twitter outrage cases where I did I chose not to invest the time in understanding the outrage because I sort of knew I was going to acquire it one way or the other. But, um, I mean, are there licensing issues that prevent NBC from streaming some of this stuff, or did they just screw it up? Or Well, no, because the thing is they have a way to stream everything live. Well, but maybe the but you have are to be a or... cable subscriber. But that doesn't so make sense. Basically, if you can, network? if you can get MSNBC, whatever they're calling it now. Okay. So if you're, if as long as they're getting money from the cable providers for one of their like, you know, properties, then they'll give you access to the live streaming. Huh. Which seems a bit and it just seems so convoluted yeah 
And are they, I mean, do they have any sort of pay for access option? I didn't see one. I mean, they were touting how great it is that it's free, but yeah. I mean, that seems like a big missed opportunity if they're not doing that. And it, you know, just like the issues people have with HBO and everywhere else, it'd be really nice if some, you know, we got to a point where people who want the content and want to pay for it have that option. Yeah. I just don't, I don't know. I'm sure it has to do with the cable company somehow, but. Right, right. Yeah, I mean. But like your NBC, you have the Olympics. Who's going to like, what are they going to drop NBC for the week? Right. Because you're allowing people to stream it? Like, seriously, like you've got a little bit of uh, leverage here. And then they'll be streaming some sports online, but I think they don't stream all the sports online. And They stream all of them if you have that, if you're in that tier of cable subscribers. Huh. Yeah, it's like, it seems really weird. Yeah. it's Yeah, I'm just looking now, and it doesn't look like there's a way to buy, which is just, again, you know, either, there are a lot of people, I don't have cable either, but I would happily pay a little bit of money for access. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. That's too bad. Yeah. Um, so every year around the Olympics, we see a flurry of um, press releases and other, other articles about the video production tech that's being used in the Olympics because obviously there's an awful lot of content produced and a lot of sort of logistics and management that goes into dealing with all of that. Um, and I haven't seen too many of those articles start to come out yet. They'll just sort of be trickling out over the next couple of weeks as we get press releases about who built what facility and who's dealing with the fiber transports and everything else. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of that came out months or years ago when people well, first got the contract, sure. you know, so... But now there'll be I'm pictures sure, of the cool data know, Whoever the camera it. manufacturer were, they, they penned that deal at NAB, you know, a few years ago, and they got their press release out then. But I'm sure they'll do some follow-up work within the next week or two. And you flagged an article about um, some 8K production. Yeah, so it looks like they're starting to play with um, NHK and BBC and a few other people are um, doing this demo of... 8K super high vision um, at the show. And I don't know, the quote that came up a bunch of times is that it looks more 3D than 3D, which I thought was interesting because it's not 3D. It's just really high definition 2D. Yeah. But I kind of uh-huh. get that. I mean, I had that experience. This is only related in my head, but I had that experience a couple of weeks ago when I was, when I was up in the mountains in Italy, um, because the air is thinner and very clear and the whole world sort of looked more high definition. It looked more real to me. Mm-hmm. And I had that experience multiple times of feeling like I was sort of looking at a really nice HD image. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was the real world. And I can see how, you know, seeing really good 8k footage could make it feel like it is more real than, than 3d. Yeah. So it'll be interesting. I mean, you know, this kind of dovetails with the idea of, um, you know, starting to shoot in higher frame rates and whatnot. Like, it'll be interesting to see if any of this stuff actually takes off. Yeah. At least as like a, you know, theatrical format. Yeah. And there is a bunch of 3D production going on at the Olympics as well. But uh, again, I, I don't know. I just can't be bothered to care about that. Yeah. 
Yeah, it seems like the kind of it could work. Yeah. For or, games. Yeah. But I don't know. It'll be interesting. Yeah. Um Yeah, so I don't have much else to say about that, but it sure. seemed like it was an interesting yeah, it's always fun to. I mean, it's always fun to see those articles as they come out of just how the games are happening because it is a really immense task. Um, I, I assume it's you know most years at least it's Sony who's the primary technology provider. I assume that's the case again. And it's, yeah, they it's, have been. I think it's just a, it's a great opportunity for a company like Sony to really show off soup to nuts what they can do from cameras to infrastructure and you know data management and everything else and uh you know it's because it's a single sort of nice time period um you know you can really see and and geographic location you can see pretty compactly just what they're capable of yeah i think this is actually the first this is the first olympics when i'm not um based out of new york well i guess there was a winter one in here but um yeah, it used to it used to be interesting to see all the people leave town, all the NBC engineers leave town for a month. Sure. Um, you know, and then like the three months, four months leading up, doing all the like, you know, training in on new switchers and various stuff, asset management systems. And it's it's a huge show. Well, and it's worth noting too if you're in the you know sort of in the broadcast industry. Um, post-Olympics is always a great opportunity to buy used gear. And if you work through your Sony reps um, or through other reps who are, you know, technology providers, there's often good good deals available on lightly used equipment. Uh, I've been offered some of that in the past. Yeah. Uh, Speaking yeah. of Sony cameras, I'll just throw this out briefly. Sony introduced a new camera, the PMW200, which is a S by S card-based camera that shoots in their 422 format which is a a, we've talked about in the past is a really nice um acquisition format for i'm i don't know it doesn't look like i am in the meters you're fine now i don't know I, i might have gotten a little too far off mic um, anyway, so th- there's a new camera from Sony that shoots S by S card 422. It's the first, I think, camera that's shooting 422 to S by S cards. It's sort of the successor to the EX1 and the EX1R, which was for a long time my favorite camera. Um, and this has, you know, a lot of the same cool ergonomics of that camera and and great imagers, and has this great new 422 format. And interestingly, drops things like component video out um, in favor of an all digital sort of pipeline. But it's a a nice little update. Um, if you're familiar with that camera with the EX1, this is definitely a uh, a nice camera to move up to if you're in that sort of XD cam workflow. Hmm. Um, so it's shooting to XD, so MXF wrapped XD cam on S by S cards. Right. And then Sony has their officially sanctioned S by S to SD card converters nowadays. So most people I think are shooting to those in in reality. Um, but yeah, and and, you know, that camera's always, it's got nice big sensors and, and great low light and is just a really solid sort of. It's not a digital cinema camera. It's, it's you know, a sort of all-around decent camera. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely more... I mean, this is, this is good in the standard video ENG-type space, like small, 
camera. It's not, you know, it's a different, it's a different beast than like a C300 or something. Absolutely. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's or not. Or FS100 or anything like that. I mean, it's fixed lens. Right. It's more like what video cameras used to be. Um, and there's certainly still a lot of market for those. And if you're not. It's a dock camera. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. So. Yeah. No, it looks nice. I mean, I've always, the X1 was a really nice camera. Um, so that's cool. Yeah. Um, other bit of camera news, just very briefly, Canon officially unveiled the EOS M, which is their new mirrorless, uh, camera in this new, this new space, relatively new space of mirrorless sort of interchangeable lens cameras. Um, it's essentially the guts of a rebel T3i in a body without a mirror, uh, and a new lens format, the EOS M lens format, uh, that lets you, you know, use new lenses. There's an adapter to use older lenses as well. And uh, people seem pretty impressed with it. Yeah. Um, do you get any impression why they had this? Why they switched the lens format? No. Is it just that they don't need as much back focus space? That was like you can get the lens closer in. Yeah, exactly. That was my guess on it because the adapt. You know, obviously that lets you have a more compact camera, and then the adapters that are available are able to b- bump the lenses out um, for the the deeper focal depth. But yeah. I mean, that's one of the advantages of a mirrorless camera is that the lens can be closer to the sensor. And everything's smaller, yeah. Right. So it'll be interesting. Um, you know, I, I'm a little skeptical of these, but uh, yeah, it seems like a nice camera. Yeah, I mean, it seems like... I don't know. I get, I get why you're not too impressed just from, like... Like, I, there's not much of a argument for throwing away your existing DSLR and switching, but it seems to me like technology-wise, it's a better option than a DSLR. Like, it's... Yeah, I mean, for me, it's an ergonomics thing more than the... You can definitely make the technical case that this is the way to build this type of camera, but for me, the ergonomics of a DSLR in terms of the number of controls, having a viewfinder, um, and just the weight and balance, I, I guess I don't feel like these mirrorless cameras are pocketable anyways, and so... There's not a real workflow difference or usability difference between one of these and a DSLR, and I would rather have the ergonomics of a DSLR if I'm going to be dealing with a camera that doesn't fit in my pocket anyways. Yeah, but, I mean, what are the what are the big advantages of a DSLR? I mean, moving parts that can break or need to be recalibrated periodically um, that take time to shift around, and that actually slows down your frame rate. Yeah, I mean, for, um, for me, it's... it's... And it's the viewfinder. It's the way you hold it and hold it to your face for stability. It's the fact that there are more controls that are easily accessible at your fingertips as you're looking through the viewfinder. So while you're focusing your shot, you can be, you know, switching to a different ISO or a different shutter speed. Um, and it's, yeah, just in general, those ergonomics is really for, for me at least. Um, yeah. I don't know. This seems like the way to build a camera. I'm excited about it. I hope they, you know, they're still, I think they're still trying to find where they're going to fit these into their um, product line, just because for the most part, people who want DSLRs have DSLRs, and it's, so it's, they don't, you know, they're not creating a new market with these cameras. So 
it's it's a hard sell for someone who you know there's there's very little advantage if you already have a camera like this but it'll be interesting to see how they over time can sort of make this a, you know a separate line i think they could you know continue to grow them up market put a lot more features in as far as control ergonomics without you know without having the viewfinder yeah and all that legacy junk yeah, Sony this week released the RX100 in their CyberShot line, which is also, it, this is a pocketable camera like a Canon S100, sort of a baby brother to the NEX line um, with fixed lens and everything. But the Verge review, which we'll link in the show notes, basically says if you're if you're going to have a pocket camera, this is now the one to have. They were incredibly impressed by it. It was one of the most sort of superlative reviews I've seen them write. Um Hmm. And yeah, it, it looks like a very tempting camera. The issue for me is just, again, my iPhone 4S is a good enough camera most of the time, and it's always in my pocket. And for the times in which I'm going to carry a camera, may as well carry a real camera, like a yeah, DSLR. I mean, my complaint with the Sony has always been, like the Sony tan, the pocket cameras, where they just didn't like the choices they made for auto. Sure. Like, I always thought the Canon, the Sure Shots just looked better when you just run, you know, just hit the shutter and got a picture on. Um, and that was purely like the, you know, just the choices they made for where their white balance hit and where their focus and like how much they, you know, their, their flash adjustments and whatnot. Yeah. So what else uh, from our list here? Um, I don't know. How are we doing on time? Um, I don't really know. We're only about half hour in, I think. Okay. Um, we could do, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Grab something. Well, did you read this uh, Adderall article? I did. I thought this was interesting because as software developers, this is someone sort of in our in our wheelhouse, although he's a tech writer, writing about his experiences um, using slash being addicted to slash sort of using again um, Adderall as a performance-enhancing drug, essentially. Like steroids for people who sit at desks. Yeah, exactly. You know, to be able to concentrate <laughs> and write reviews and get work done. And, um, obviously, there have been a number of articles about this sort of thing, especially um, drugs like this being used in... Uh, universities. There was one in the New Yorker a few years back that, that went in depth pretty well. But I think it's interesting in the tech world, and I, I wonder how prevalent it is both in the tech writing world but also in the startup world, um, how prevalent the use of this is. I mean, the way he talks about it, it sounds like getting a prescription for Adderall, at least in his part of California, was as easy as getting a prescription for marijuana in his part right. of California. I mean, um, you know, there are clinics set up just to give Adderall prescriptions, essentially, so... Right, yeah. No, I mean, it seems like... I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing there are people who do this, but it seems like so much of... Um, I mean, how much of the world... How much of, you know... So, startup culture is all 20-something men. Um... You know, that's not a good thing, but that's the truth. Um, how many of them have, weren't diagnosed with ADHD far earlier in life? Sure. Like, 
isn't that like, you know, what's the diagnosis right now? Isn't it like 60% or something? Probably. I mean, it's some crazy number. It would be, it would just be interesting to know. I don't know. And I haven't gotten a good sense. And maybe you do out in San Francisco of what the sort of substance abuse issues are within the startup community. Um, yeah, I don't really know either. I mean, I wouldn't surprise me. Um, I mean, you've got these, these, all these, it, it's interesting because you've got these different issues at play because you've got nerdy sort of introverted types, you know, engineering types, but you've also got a lot of money and, um, you know, a lot of people coming out of businesses that are less introverted and getting involved and you've got everyone, you know, working really hard and letting loose. And so not just Adderall, but you know, cocaine and other things. I, I don't know. I, it would be interesting to see a study of, of what that situation looks like in, in an area like San Francisco or Austin or some of these other hotbeds. Yeah. I mean, my, my impression is it's, you know, it's mostly the standard liquor. Right. You know, it's alcohol like it is in any other industry. Um, I haven't seen much, but I'm not in, you know, I'm not in an incubator or something where the pressure to beat everybody else is probably a lot higher. Yeah. Well, and obviously, I mean, there's been the, the long-term relationship between the nerd community and, and caffeine and, you know, right. you have yeah. sort of natural progressions on from that potentially, but, uh, I don't know. Um, it was an interesting article and I, I got to just say props to the verge for, again, pushing tech journalism into a space that, you know, is not just, you know, speeds and feeds sort of reviews, but actually some interesting, insightful and, you know, personal. Yeah. Writing. No, this felt like a, um, like a Rolling Stone article. It was yeah. good. Yeah. It's definitely, um, yeah, they're doing the most interesting stuff out there. Absolutely. Tech journalism. Absolutely. Um, the other article I've got flagged, and this is a good one. If you're into some of the things we talked about when we first started this show, um, black hat was this week, uh, DEF CON, I think is coming up next, actually DEF, I think DEF CON's next week. Black hat was last week, whatever the big, really? they're the same, con- they're the same people, right? They, they backend each other. They do. Yeah. And, See, um, the hope so they have two conferences and you're just supposed to like go to New York and go to both of them. Uh, I think this one's in, aren't they in Vegas or something? No, they're not in New York. No, Hope's in Vegas. Black Hat's in New York. Hope's in New York. Oh, maybe you're right. The 2600 conference, and that may have been going on as well. I don't know. A lot of hacker conferences. And I think, you know, they've sort of differentiated themselves in terms of whether you're bringing, you're coming to present an actual academic paper you've written or whether you're sort of coming for more of the Burning Man thing. I, I, I don't really know who's who these days, but, uh, They've tried to differentiate, and so a lot of people do go, you know, go to both Black Hat and DefCon for different reasons. Um, but anyways, there was a, an article out of Black Hat um, of a guy who reverse engineered the security on the type of card-based lock used by four million hotel rooms in the U.S. Uh, and found that basically it's there is no security, and demonstrated using an Arduino controller to go up to any lock in a facility pull the master encryption key essentially and be able to then go to any other lock and unlock the door or generate his own master key on an actual mag strip uh, that he can go up and swipe any door and unlock it. Yeah. I mean, it looks like you plug it into like the little port at the bottom of the thing and the door opens. Right. That's about it. 
yeah. there's no there's no work involved right well i mean there was a lot of work to figure out what memory address to talk to and things like that but it, once you've built the little box he can go up to any room and uh, right. pop the door open which you know is uh not only a security issue in terms of if you're staying in a hotel room you don't want to have someone wander in um but also this is sort of anytime you got a hack of fixed infrastructure like this um it sounds like the sort of fix for this is um at a minimum reflash every door and replace all your programming hardware but could very well be uh, depending on the design of the devices could very well be uh, replaced every lock yeah um but it's an interesting it's it's an article if you're sort of halfway interested in hardware hacking and how some of this happens he has a slide deck and a paper that go through his process and how it works in a in a way that's fairly non-technical um and explains how these locks work so uh it's worth a read it's a pretty quick read um and you know slightly scary yeah you, you know use the little like low-tech lock too well, and, you know, someone in the Slashdot thread on this, someone was pointing out that all of those sort of backup locks on doors are just as susceptible to things like, you know, a coat hanger to nudge the little latchy thing or a bump key to do a uh, deadbolt. I mean, you know, locks are, doors are, doors are openable. Um, but, you know, we always have this unfounded sense of security from a, a digital lock like this and it turns out that they are even easier than a bump key in some cases to open right so yeah um did you so you got your new computer your retina oh yeah 15 uh, inch do you want to talk about that at all or well, it's a very nice computer. I'm very happy with it. It's speedy and um, uh, works well and is nice and thin. And uh, So you're coming from the regular 15-inch, right? Yeah, I had a late 2010 15-inch, so the last MacBook Pro without Thunderbolt. Uh, but I had an SSD and a bunch of RAM and everything and a Core i7. Um, this machine is noticeably faster, Um it's got you know two more physical cores plus a bit more RAM and a faster SSD, and it, you know the Retina display is great, and I just I really like the you know pound less weight, and um, that's pretty slick. So um, I I will link to in the show notes Anand Tech again another sort of long term internet site that's always done great content, although obviously in a very nerdy sense. Um, Anantech has published their review of the MacBook Pro Retina, um, and they go in-depth not only on sort of general review stuff, but they talk about what's going on behind the scenes to make the Retina display possible in terms of the type of engineering Apple's had to do and the way they've built their scalers and um, filtering and things like that to be able to actually display retina resolution imagery uh, because in some cases the GPUs they wanted to use weren't capable out of the box of doing the things they needed it to do and they've had to do some pretty interesting workarounds for that and so it's a good read um, even if you're not interested in this particular machine if you're sort of interested in how manufacturers and how Apple is making this transition to retina it's uh, an interesting read because you know again it's another one of these cases like as I'm using this retina this, this retina MacBook Pro I'm sort of marveling at how well everything works and thinking of, 
I, I would love to know when the first meeting was at Apple where they said we need to get ready to ship a laptop with, you know, 20, however many pixels this has running at double resolution because the amount of things that had to go right to make this machine work as well as it does is pretty startling. Yeah. No, it's, um, yeah, it's a testament to them that they can push something like this out and still balance all of the levers they need to to have it be, you know, like consistently better Absolutely. than the last thing you owned. So props to them for this. Very nice hardware, you know, typical Apple build quality and everything. Um, I'll be eager to take it out of the house and get a sense of what real-world battery life is like. But uh, so far, so good. Cool. Um, yeah, so that's about it. Everything, right? Sure. Do Dog. some chatter and then... I'm going to go do some grilling. Oh, what? My dog is getting ready, so... What'd you say? My dog's getting ready, so, uh, yeah, let's let's get on. Okay, well, you got anything this week? Um, gee. I thought I did, but apparently I don't, so you go first. Okay, so I got two this week. One is um, uh, a new podcast I've been listening to, 99% Invisible. Oh, yeah, I, I've listened uh, to one of those now. Yeah? Really good. Yeah. But specifically, I wanted to call it one specific episode, which is about um, the people who do sound design for the Olympics. So this was, I think, from four years ago. Might have been from the, might have been from the Winter Olympics. I don't even know, because um, I think I think they called out um, some sort of snow skiing and uh, rowing. So might have just been talking to people who tend to do this. Um, but the idea, you know, the gist of it is, most of these, you know, they we sh- they shoot these sports from crazy far away with all these cool camera technologies and stuff. And the thing you don't actually realize when you're watching this is the sound is almost entirely folly. Really? Um, yeah, they actually record because it's like it's just impossible with the scale of some of these things. You know, like you go to a rowing competition, they're shooting from helicopters, and they've got you know, uh, like boats, chase boats out there with motors on them. And it's just impossible to get any decent sound. And so they, they literally just go out, record, you know, row oars dipping in the water sounds and stuff, Uh and then just load them into a synthesizer and just play them, you know, like someone literally just triggers random folly noises to go with what's being shown on screen. That's kind of awesome. It's kind of awesome, but it's the thing you just would never expect. Like, that's all fake audio. Yeah, I figured they had, like, dudes with parabolic dishes and, you know. You thought, but apparently they, I mean, I'm sure they have some of that too, but it sounds like they do a lot of folly. Okay. Well, I will dig up the specific episode and uh, link to it, but, you know. In general, it's an amazing podcast. It's a really good podcast, yeah. I was and they are of... doing a Kickstarter right now, so go listen to them now, and uh, if you like them, give them some money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then my other one was a video uh, that I found that someone linked to this week, which is it's just a really cool-looking video. It's a uh, it's footage of a guy wearing a... Um, snowsuit made entirely out of LEDs, like entirely coated in white LEDs, um, snowboarding in slow motion. 
<laughs> at night. Okay. And so it's just like the only light source is the guy's suit. Do I and it's just ha- have it's to do crazy a- looking? Do I have to do acid first, or I? Uh, it wouldn't hurt, but okay. yeah, I don't think you need to. Okay. And and since we are a San Francisco-based startup, uh, the company healthcare covers that. Sure. Why not? Okay. We don't, we don't know. Exactly. It's part of our new uh, in-house Steve Jobs incubation program. <laughs> All new employees have to do acid. And also be billionaires. Yeah. Well, that comes next. That's oh. step two. Okay. That's good. Um, the the chatter I'll do is just toss out briefly... Um, Drobo has finally announced pricing on their Thunderbolt-based Drobo devices. They've got a couple. Um, and the pricing surprised me for being pretty reasonable. Um, Drobo's products never compete on price. They compete on the ease of use of slap drives in, have storage that works and is you know, secure in that you can lose a drive or two drives and not lose all your data. Um, and they've really sort of cornered the market on people who need a lot of secure storage and don't want to learn how to manage a RAID array. And so if that is you, which in the case of the media industry is a lot of people, even if you're just a sort of serious DSLR photographer shooting raw, um, you should still be doing backups. You should still be doing backups. You should still be doing backups. But, um, the Drobo is a great way to get a lot of storage attached to your machine and not have to worry about it. I've been running one of these for five or six years now. I bought one pre-order before the first Drobo even started shipping, and it is still in my closet humming along. It's slow and old, but it still works. Um, So testament to them, and it's cool to see them still around doing cool new products that many years later. So wait, isn't it USB? Mine the is, one you have? Mine is USB. It's USB 2 hooked up to an airport base station. Ah, uh, okay. I was going to say, that's a long cable into your closet. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but then, the, you know, they've got now Firewire, you know, iSCSI, NAS, and um, now Thunderbolt and ESAT as well. Um, but, you know, pretty much anything out there and USB 3 as well. But uh, the Thunderbolt ones are... Again, you know, if you've been looking at a Promise uh, RAID array, the pricing is relatively similar, and you get this sort of ease of use of Drobo of not having to know anything about RAID levels or things like that. Buy a Drobo, buy some some SATA drives, hook it up, and when the red light comes on, put a new SATA drive in. Nice. So, yep. That's that. So, yeah. um, I think that's everything we had. Okay. Um, I'll talk to you next week, Colin. Sounds like a plan. Have a good one. You too.